Good morning. If you have a Bible, you can open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13, we will be uh, walking through uh, chapter 13. Then we pause for the summer, and we will be uh, walking through some Old Testament passages throughout the summer. Um, And then we will pick back up in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 at the end of July, just so you can know that ahead of time. Uh, as we're getting started, I want to just uh, point out a couple things. One, there is quite a bit to be grateful for to God in our lives and in our church family. I don't know if you would agree with that, but uh, there is quite a bit. And so it is appropriate on this Memorial Day, I think, to pause for just a moment. One of the things we do in worship is we gather together to turn our attention and our affection to the Lord. And one of the ways we do that is to say thank you to him for the many blessings that he's given us and Uh, Not to to overdo this, but to simply say where we are is a blessing. And with that blessing comes the responsibility to be a blessing. And so it is important for us to say thank you to those who paid a sacrifice so that we would have the freedom to gather to worship so we could then be a blessing to our community with the message of the gospel. Speaking of memorials, we also thank God for the opportunity to partner alongside uh, the Langford family. Uh, Brian and Janice. Brian is an elder here at our church. Janice is on staff, uh, administrative assistant on staff at New Hope. Um, And their son, Justin, who was an important part of this church family, um, in 2014 was killed in a tragic accident. Uh, Still hard to talk about. (laughs) Uh, He made a big impact on many people in this church family. And every year we get to walk alongside this family as they do a memorial run in his honor to gather funds for a scholarship. And we're honored to do that. This year the run is virtual. Uh, you can sign on our, to our website and learn more about it. Next year, we'll be back, and we'll be hosting it here right on our campus for everyone to participate in. But you can check out the website for that. And so with all that in mind, let's one more time pause and thank the Lord for his many blessings. Father, we thank you because you truly have been good to us. Thank you for the opportunity we have to be where we are. It is no mistake. You have placed us in this place on purpose to be a blessing, and we thank you for that. Father, we thank you for families like the Langfords who have made impact in this community and in this church, and uh, we just thank you for the opportunity to serve alongside them as well. Father, as we turn our attention to your word, we ask that you would speak clearly to us this morning, and we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Many years ago, when I was a seminary student, uh, I was in grad school, I would come back here and get to preach on Sunday mornings when I was first starting out at New Hope. And I would not preach every Sunday morning, but occasionally I got the opportunity to preach. And so everything I'm learning in seminary kind of built up and pent up, and I got so excited, and I would get up here and try to, you know, just throw it out to all of you. And uh, it was a huge mistake. And Um, because you're just trying to overdo it. You're just so pumped about the things that you're learning, and you're so excited for it. And so uh, I would miscommunicate things. You are so patient and kind to let me grow. You're still so patient and kind to let me grow uh, as a preacher. But back then, there was a lot I tried to share with you, and a lot was probably missed because of the way that uh, I communicated it. And uh, there was a couple things, though, that stuck, and they stuck back then. And if you're new around here, you haven't heard this phrase often, but if you've been here for a while, you know where I'm headed. Uh, there is a phrase uh, that I said often and have not said in a while, but it is still just as true. When it comes to us studying scripture together, context is king. Now, some of you just threw up in your mouth and uh, because of how often you heard that phrase many years ago. But that is still a very true statement. Context is king. Here's what I mean by that. Mark Moore uh, is a professor or was a professor of New Testament at Ozark Christian College. We've had Mark here to teach before in the past. A wonderful man, wonderful teacher. 
He tells a story of a time when he was speaking at a Christ in Youth conference. And those are big conferences for high school students. Thousands of students show up. He was one of the guys that got up and would teach and preach. Well, he's a fit guy. He likes to work out, stay in shape. And so when he would go to these conferences, he would oftentimes use some of his break time to go in and get a workout or go for a run. In this particular conference, he decided to go into the gym to get a workout in, and he goes into the gym to work out. And on this particular visit, he notices these two high school students getting ready to bench press. And uh, what stuck out to him, that's not, uh, you know, you see high school kids all the time bench pressing. You know, you lay down in the bar and you bench the the weight off of your chest and a friend supposedly stands and spots you uh, to make sure that you don't die. Well, on this particular occasion, he noticed the discrepancy between the weight that was on the bench and the size of the child getting ready to try to lift it. And he thought, oh, this is not going to go well. And so he decided to sit back and watch long enough for the kid to get that before he jumped in and said, don't do this. And so, but right before, this is what really stood out to him. He says, right before this kid tried to lift this absurd amount of weight, he put both hands up on the bar, took a deep breath and yelled out, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Mark thought in that moment, in that particular moment, is the Bible lying? Because there's no way that kid was lifting that weight. He said, so when he lifts that weight off the bar, I mean, the kid's going to die. And when he dies in that moment, now is the Bible lying because he couldn't do all things through Christ who was giving him strength? Well, I'll tell you what. If you take context and you ignore it, you take a verse of the Bible and you pull it out of its context, it becomes what we call a pretext. You can make a pretext, say whatever you want it to say. And many people do that with the Bible. Many people grab popular verses like Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, I can do all things. Through Christ who gives me strength. If, in fact, that verse is intended to say that you can do all of your dreams and achieve all of your goals through Christ who gives you strength, then, yes, in fact, the Bible is lying when the weight drops on the kid and crushes him. But, thankfully, that's not what that verse is talking about. Philippians chapter 4, verse 13 has nothing to do with you reaching your goals and achieving all of your dreams. Philippians chapter 4, verse 13 is about enduring persecution and suffering for your faith. And when you're going through a hard time where your faith is really tested, you can endure through Christ who gives you strength. You see, the, way, the reason I belabor this, the reason I continue to you know, harp on this, this idea that when it comes to Bible study, context is king, is because many of us have encountered 1 Corinthians 13 the same way. This beautiful passage of scripture that we're going to study today, perhaps one of the most beautiful pieces of literature ever written, describing love. We have encountered it on coffee mugs and calendars. We've encountered it in love songs and pretty much uh, all the Hallmark movies. And we've heard it read at weddings. And I'm not going to stop with the Hallmark movie thing. I'll probably get in trouble at some point, but they're just an easy target. Many of marriages have been ruined. Uh, So, sorry. Oops. All right. So 1 Corinthians 13, we've encountered it that way. And many of us, look, here's the thing. Not all of that's bad. It's not all bad to draw certain conclusions from a chapter that's describing love in general, but but we do a disservice to the text and to ourselves when we remove it from its context to try to make it say whatever we want it to say so that we can feel the way that we want to feel about this thing called love. But before you apply 1 Corinthians 13 to New Hope or before you would apply 1 Corinthians 13 to your own life, you must first start in Corinth. This was written to a particular group of people at a particular time, and Paul intended to say a very particular thing about love. So without first understanding why it was written to Corinth, we are at risk of misunderstanding what was said all together. So why was it written to Corinth? Well, many of you have been studying with us all year. We've started this at the beginning of January. We've been studying through, and we've learned a few things about this church. The church at Corinth was uh, a confused, 
divisive church. They were divided. And they were divided over multiple things. We read uh, chapter 11, they're divided over the idea of communion. And really that boiled down to socioeconomic status. The wealthier people got served, the poorer people did not get served. The wealthier people got to go first, the poorer people did not get to go. They were divided over gifts. What spiritual gift that the Lord gives is superior to other spiritual gifts? Who has the better gift? And so, well, if you have that gift, you've obviously attained some level of spiritual maturity that no one else has. And they're divided over this. And you remember in chapter 12, the apostle Paul says, no, that's not the point of spiritual gifts at all. And then in chapter 14, sandwiched right on either end, chapter 13, on either end of chapter 13, in chapter 14, he'll talk about what it means to gather as a body of Christ and what should those gatherings really look like and what should be a part of them and what shouldn't be a part of them. And right in between, it's as if the Apostle Paul, after fielding question after question from this church in Corinth, has kind of had enough. And he stops and he says, hey, enough's enough. You are missing the point. You're missing it altogether. And so he pens what we call chapter 13, this beautiful section, these 13 verses on love. And he begins to describe love. So because our passage is commonly called the love chapter, it would be wise for us to start out defining our terms. The New Testament uses four different words for the word love, for this idea that we call love in our culture. Here's the four. The first one is eros. Eros is a romantic love. This is that uh, feeling you get that I just, you know, can't help falling in love with you. I just have that feeling inside of me. And that's that romantic love shared between a man and a woman. Okay. The next word is phileo. This is a brotherly love. This is kind of like a friendship connection type love. This is where we get uh, the idea of the city of Philadelphia, which is the city of brotherly love, making sure you're still awake with me. The third word is storge. Storge is defined as a family love. This is Love between family members, that special bond that's just a little bit different than the bond that you have with those who are outside of your family. And then there's this fourth word called agape. Agape is God's unconditional or God's divine love. This is the word that Paul chooses to use in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which, uh uh-oh. Now, here's the deal. We read 1 Corinthians 13 at our wedding, too, so, like, don't feel bad, okay? But we're going to learn that that might not be what Paul was getting at when he wrote this chapter, Because he uses this word agape. The word agape is rare in Greek literature. It didn't show up all the time. It was rare because these other words could adequately convey love. But the New Testament writers were up against something. They wanted to communicate something about God's love that separated itself from the other types of love. They wanted to be able to use a term that would describe the love of God in a way that it could not be confused by any other type of love. It would stand alone as a separate and strong type of love. And so they employed this word agape, the love of God, different from the love that we share with one another, different from the love that, uh, that you would share romantically or the bond that you would share in a family. The love of God is unique and special. And so the New Testament writers would implore this word to separate that concept off by itself. I like the way that Leon Morris, a New Testament scholar, describes agape love. He says this, agape, it's a love for the utterly unworthy. It is a love which proceeds from a God who himself is love. It is a love lavished on others without a thought of whether they deserve it or not, whether they deserve to receive it or not. It proceeds rather from the nature of the lover than from any merit of the beloved. That's a key part of this. This type of love proceeds from the one who is expressing the love, not so much from the one receiving it. Meaning, agape love is a love that God shows to men and women because he chooses to. It's not to burst your bubble because we're irresistible. It's not because when God looks at us and it's like, I just can't help loving them. They're so great. The truth of the matter is, when God would look at us, we are not. We are not lovable in our sin. 
Our sin is so gross and disgusting to him. The idea that despite that sin, he would still want to put his love onto us is agape love. It is this choice that God makes to love us even when we do not deserve it. With that understanding of agape love, know that when we talk in 1 Corinthians 13, this is the word being used in 1 Corinthians 13 to describe the type of love that Paul is describing for us. This is the word that he meant for us to understand. So 1 Corinthians 13, we're going to start in verse 1. If I speak in the language, in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all that I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship, that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Paul starts out uh, this description of love using a literary tool called hyperbole. And you understand this. He's exaggerating. And he's doing that on purpose to try to communicate a certain thing to the church at Corinth. And so he starts out, he's not talking about some special language that the angels have that men have access to and somehow they're going to be able to achieve the ability to speak in an angelic way. That's not what he's talking about. What he's saying is, if I had the most incredible ability to have the best type of language, if I was the clearest person at speaking, if I was able to communicate the hardest things in the world but could not love somebody, then I am simply making noise. No one's sleeping through my sermon today, okay? (laughs) You can see he continues to use hyperbole again in verse 2, if we can keep that up there. In verse 2, he says, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, well, Paul knows good and well that in our finite ability as human beings, we don't have the capacity to know all mysteries and to gain all knowledge. He, again, is exaggerating here. What he's saying to the church of Corinth is, you've been chasing after this. You want to be the top dog. You guys want your gifts to be the most important. You want your knowledge to be the best. You want to be the smartest Christian every time you walk in the room. That's what your goal is. And if you become that intelligent, let's just say you were able to learn everything and you knew all there was to know, but you didn't love people, then your life is just making noise. That's all you're doing with your life. You're just making a bunch of noise. He moves on and says, if I have the faith to move mountains. Well, Jesus spoke to this, didn't he? And in Matthew chapter 17, verse 20, Jesus said this, because you have so little faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed. Now, if I was holding a mustard seed, you wouldn't know it. That's how small they are. You could just, they're just so tiny. You can say to this, with that level of faith, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Now, Paul is using exaggeration hyperbole again. He's saying, let's just say you didn't have mustard seed faith, but you had huge faith. I mean, your faith was just incredible, and you could just move mountains. I mean, you were it. When it came to faith, nobody matched you, you Christians in Corinth. You guys had the top faith, but in that faith, you couldn't love other people. Then that's all your life is doing. It's just making noise. People, it's impossible for, for people to see God through the ego and the pride that you're displaying and your ability to have this gift. He says, if I have all of this wealth and I give to the poor, like I've got money and I can give everything I have to the poor. Again, Paul is using hyperbole. We're not called anywhere in scripture to just completely give everything away. We're called to be radically generous. But he's saying, let's just say on top of that, you gave it all away. I mean, you were just, everything was gone. You held on to nothing. You were the most extravagantly generous person alive, but you could not love somebody. Then your life is simply, I'll spare you one more time hitting it. Here's his point. He's saying that their gifts, the gifts that they did have, were contradicted by their lives. They weren't evaluating their health spiritually the right way. 
Think about it this way. Let me illustrate for you this way. Imagine that you've rented a car and you're out west driving in the mountains and you're heading up a mountain in this rented car and it begins to struggle. I mean, this car is just struggling to get up uh, this side of a mountain. No four-wheel drive. I mean, you're in, let's just say you're in a Prius. No offense. All right. And you're just kind of, no, it wouldn't be a Prius because this wouldn't work. But let's just say you're driving up uh, in the mountains and you're, you're in this car and it begins to struggle. And you look down at the dial as the car is just like, ah, oh, I don't know what's going on. And you look out at that gauge and the gauge says, man, this isn't like, it's not suffering really. I mean, the gauge is not in the red. It's in that healthy place. No big deal. You keep going. You look out the windshield and you kind of see some smoke coming out of the engine, but you're like, I'm looking at the gauge and the gauge says the engine's fine. And then boom, the engine blows. And then you come to realize, man, I was looking over here at this gauge and it looked totally fine, but I guess that had nothing to do with the engine because over here, this gauge was struggling the whole time. I mean, it was in the red and it was telling me, you better stop this car. This engine's going to blow. What the apostle Paul is saying here is that when you look at your gifts, when you look at what you're able to do, what you're able to accomplish, when you look at your ability to be generous, when you look at your ability to be intelligent and teach the Bible and to be all these things in front of all these people, you are looking at the wrong gauge to indicate what's really going on under the hood spiritually. Look, you can be, you can be the most incredible Christian on the outside. You can say all the right things. You can make all the right choices. I mean, someone could look at your life and just say, man, that person is hitting it out of the park. They're nailing it. And you can be dying on the inside. You can be missing the entire point of it all. Because that whole time, you're just trying to find your validation in what you've accomplished and what you're able to do. This is a really important point for us to grab onto. You can be an extremely religious person and not be honoring Jesus with your life. Many of us have encountered people like that. And if we're honest, many of us have fallen into that. And this is essentially what Paul's saying to the church at Corinth. I wish, really, in my walk with the Lord, someone had got a hold of me as a young Christian and told me this. I really do. I wish someone would have set me aside and said, Rob, like you're, you're doing everything you can to prove yourself by what you do. Every time we talk about generosity, you, 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 you want to like prove that you're generous by giving a certain amount. And, and these gifts that you have, you're putting so much energy into developing the gifts so that people can recognize that you have the gift. You're doing all these things and you're missing the point of it all. This is what Paul is saying to them. The most impressive display of a spiritual gift, it can't compensate for a lack of love. It just can't. And Paul's telling this church right here in the first three verses, the most pivotal verses of the whole passage, you cannot compensate for a lack of love by being a really gifted, talented person. The image will crumble every single time. Paul's saying, I don't care what gift you have. I don't care how good you are at it, and I don't care how well you develop. I don't care if you put the 10,000 hours into it to become the expert. At the end of the day, if you don't love somebody, then your life is simply making noise. That's all you're doing. You're just making a bunch of noise, and people can't see Jesus because of it. It's also important for us to understand that this type of love is not this warm, cozy feeling that we get. It's not this, oh, I just can't control my feelings anymore. I just love this. It makes me feel so good. Love just is so cool. I love the way I feel when I love. Like, that's not what it's talking about. This type of love, this love that we're commanded in this passage and in like the passage that Cheryl read earlier, the passage that we're commanded to, to live out, this love we're commanded to offer to other people, it's what I would call a spiritual discipline. It is a decision that we make. I like the way John Stott says it. He says it this way. John Stott wrote, love is a servant of our wills, not a victim of our emotions. What, he's, what he says is, when it comes to the love that Christians are to display to other people, we make a choice to love other people. We don't wait until we feel it. We don't wait until they deserve it. 
We don't wait until it's the right thing to do. We don't wait because how could Jesus then tell us to love our enemies? I mean, if, if love really was a response to the way we felt, how then are we to love our enemies? How is it that when someone mistreats you, when someone gossips about you, when someone really harms you or your family and Jesus says you're to love them, boy, that is not an emotionally based decision. That's got to be an act of the will. That has to be, I know that I need to do that. I'm going to make a decision to display this love to this person. It doesn't mean it's always void of feeling. But I think Stott's on to something when he's speaking of this particular type of love. It is based on, it's a servant to our will, not our emotions. Now Paul's going to go on in verses 4 through 7, which is really what everybody loves to hear about. And rightly so. It's the beautiful part of the passage. It's just an incredible description of love. But he has this reasoning for it. And we can't go through every single part of the description, but I, I want to share at least one thing with you. Let's read this passage first. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy and it does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. So why is it that Paul goes into this list to this church and begin to describe all these different characteristics of love? And while I really would like to walk through each and every one of them with you, there's one that stood out to me. When you're studying the Bible, you can do these things called word studies where you find certain words. And when you get to a list like this, you do a word study on as many of them as you have time to do. And you begin to see where this word might be used in other parts of the New Testament and the Bible and, and, and surrounding literature. And you come to a deeper understanding of what that word would have meant. And then you say, okay, if that's what that word meant, here's now what this passage means because of the meaning of that word. Well, in verse 5, the Apostle Paul describes this love of God, this agape love, by saying that this love is not self-seeking. You begin to study that word and you realize this is a complicated word because it's not just a word, it's a phrase. And translators have struggled over the years to take this word from the original language and put it into English. And the reason they've struggled is because it's, so, it's such an, a complex understanding of it. If you were, so they'll say things like self-seeking. They'll translate the word like self-seeking. But really, if you translated it out, literally it would say, love does not seek its own things. Love does not seek its own things. Well, what, what is he trying to say at that? Let me illustrate it for you this way. Any of us who have had children or raised children understand that as your kids grow, they begin to, de they begin to develop a certain type of independence, right? And so they start saying things like, I don't want your help. I don't need it. I can do it myself. Leave me alone, mommy. Don't do that, daddy. I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. My four-year-old's right there right now. Every time we get in the, in the car, I can buckle myself, daddy. Don't buckle me. I'm like, okay, well, like, I need to check your work. Like, we need to make sure that you're doing this the right way, okay? So go ahead and do your thing, and then I'll correct it if needed. I can do it myself. Don't help me. I can do it. I want to do it. I can fix that. Let me get my tools. I can fix it. And all, all the time, they're doing this. And as they get older, that independence looks a little different. It gets a little more complicated. As teenagers, they may throw in an, I hate you, you know? Like, I hate you. Uh, why do you always do that? I don't want to be under your authority. I, I hate that I always, and what they're doing is the same thing that they, the four-year-old was doing, all right? And we continue to do it as we grow. What they're saying essentially is, I don't like being under your authority. I don't like that I need you. I don't want to have to need you. I don't want to have to come to you for certain things. I don't want to sit under your authority. And the reason they do this is because they know what every heart knows. That if you need help, it means you can't do it on your own. So Paul's word here, it's not self-seeking. What he's saying is it's not somebody who thinks that they can get their own things. It's not somebody who thinks that they can do this on their own. 
mean, that is the essence of sin, is it not? Sin is the part of the heart that hates the idea that we need God. That's what sin is. Sin is that part of our heart that rebels against this idea that I need God. I can't do this on my own. I can't figure this thing out by myself. I need you, God. And when we sin, it's like, I don't want to need you. I don't like that I need you. I don't like that I have to sit under your authority. I don't want to have to come to you for help. But when it comes to loving yourself and loving other people, Paul says, you're incapable of doing this on your own. But when you become a Christian, you get access to a type of love. You get access to this level of love that nobody else has access to. No one else can comprehend. So here's the point. You cannot offer to other people the way we're commanded to what you have not received yourself, what you haven't experienced yourself. If you've not come to that place where you realize, I can't do this, God, I do need you. I can't do it. I can't validate myself. No matter how much I work, no matter how much I accomplish, no matter what I achieve, I can't get it right. I can't feel validated. I can't feel valued or worthy at all. I can't do this anymore. I need you. When you come to that place, you gain access to a love that you cannot get anywhere else. A love that is expressed to you by your heavenly father and now a love you're capable of giving to other people you could not do without that. But you might say, man, Rob, what are you talking about? Because I know a lot of people that are loving. And when I read this passage, they're not Christians, but man, they did. I know pe- pe- people that are patient and kind and they don't boast. I know these type of people. So like you're saying that they're not loving. I'm saying, no, I'm not saying they're not loving. But when you can't come to the place where you realize you can't do this on your own, everything you're doing is from a place of sin. Meaning deep down, you're doing it in a self-serving fashion to prove that you can do it. I know how to love people patiently. I can be patient. I'm going to go and be patient. I'm going to be as patient as anyone has ever been. Here we go. I can be kind. I'm going to be the kindest person. I don't have to boast. And you're doing it to show that you can do it. You're doing it for the validation and the value that comes from the approval of everyone around you. It's incomplete and shallow. And you quickly learn that even the most patient people have their limits. Even the kindest people have their days. And what the Apostle Paul is saying, on those days, you need to realize you weren't able to do this on your own to begin with. Look, this has always been my struggle. I've been walking with Jesus for almost 20 years now, and that really blows my mind. It's mind-boggling for me to say that when I think about the whole of my life. And I've never struggled, and I don't say this to be prideful, but I just don't remember struggling since I became a Christian. I don't remember struggling loving God. I love God. I mean, I'd, I would go anywhere, and I would do anything for him. My struggle, my struggle has been allowing God to love me. That's where I struggle. Allowing him to pour out his love on my life has been the most difficult part of my journey. And so when that happens, when I'm not able to, to tap into that, that freedom that comes from knowing I'm loved and fully valued. When I struggle with that, I turn to my accomplishments and my work to give me that value. I turn to other people's validation of me to get that value and that love. And when they don't give it to me, I feel wronged. And when I feel wronged, when they're supposed to give me that division. There's no way we can be united when that's the case. And when I turn to people that have wronged me and they've hurt me, now they're attacking my validation and my value because it's off-centered. It's not in Christ anymore because I need that validation. And so when you've wronged me or you've wronged someone I love, I find it even harder to be able to love you. 
And I fail again to see that I'm fully loved and validated in Christ. And so now my relationships across the board are hindered because I'm putting a weight on other people that they can't deliver. Only God can give that kind of love. And that's what Paul's saying here. You must first understand you are loved first before you're ever able to love other people this way. The love of God is patient. The love of God is kind. The love of God does not boast. It does not envy. The love of God is not self-seeking. The love of God never fails. Not your love. When we take these passages and we just try to apply our name to them as though I'm going to go out here and is Rob patient? Is Rob kind? You're going to quickly learn, no, Rob's not patient. He's not very kind. He is boastful. He is full of himself. He doesn't serve other people. When left to his own strength, he fails miserably every single time, but he must return to agape, the love of the Father. I mean, think about this. I mean, when I put that kind of weight on my wife, if I'm trying to love her to show that I can love her so that she'll validate me and let me know that I love her well enough, you know what that's like in a marriage? That's like this. But what am I really doing? She can't hear that. She can't hear that past my ego, my self-centeredness. I mean, that whole time, it's I love you because I need you to know that I love you. I need you to know. And so I'm going to say all the right things. When my friendships, when my relationship with my brothers and sisters in Christ, and I'm trying to tell you how I've lived out this life, and I'm trying to live in the validation of my giftedness, what I'm trying to tell you is this. Guess what I did? This past week, I went and did. And you can't hear it. You can't hear it past the love of self. So the Apostle Paul says, man, before you understand this, you must understand you are loved, fully loved and validated because of what Jesus did. Nothing that you're going to go do. And now everything you do is charged by that understanding. He closes this passage out beautifully, too. He kind of tells us to take a deep breath here. Verse 8, love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. That gift, one day that gift's going to go away. And you've been putting all of your attention into developing that gift. That gift has been the source of your value. And one day it's going to be gone. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Again, that gift. You just, man, i got to have that. If I could have that, then I'm at this level. One day it's gone. And you've missed it. Where there's knowledge, it will pass away. That too, that gift. That I just, I need to know the most. I need to be the best. It's going to go away one day. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the completeness comes, when the perfect comes... What is in part disappears. Now, there's discrepancies as to what that means. And I'll just, to be honest with you, I land more on that representing Jesus' coming again. And then he says this. He says, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put away child, the childish things behind me. What he's saying is this. When I, when I matured, when I began to grow spiritually, the childish things, like trying to find my value in what I could accomplish, the childish things spiritually, like trying to prove that I had the gifts that were necessary for you to validate me and value me, when I would try to be all of these other things so that everyone else would continue to tell me how great I was, I had to put that aside so I could grow up spiritually and realize I can't accomplish any of that on my own. And the spiritually mature person understands that I am validated and valued because of the work of Jesus and not my own. For now, we see only reflection as in a mirror then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. I've done, I've, I do not, he says, I, I know in part. I don't have it all figured out. I don't have it all figured out. I'm not always perfect. I mean, the apostle Paul himself, S on his chest, cape in the wind, apostle Paul, okay? That guy would write in Romans 7 that the very things I don't want to do, I find myself doing, and the things I know I should do, I find myself not doing. What a wretched man I am. I've come to the end of myself and realized I can't do this on my own. And then that beautiful line right afterwards, but thanks be to God for the grace that he displays to us in Jesus. That's a life of freedom. 
That's a life of total freedom. He says, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. He's saying so much of what we've put our energy into doesn't make that kingdom impact. I've said this to you before, but I'll say it again. When it comes to your family, when it comes to you as an individual, when it comes to this church, your greatest regret in life, fast forward a little bit. Let's get to the end of your life a little bit. Just go, go with me. You're looking back on your whole life now. Okay, you're looking back and you're trying to take it all in and you're trying to realize what you regret in that life. And at the end of that life, I'm telling you, if you walk with Jesus, you get to the end of your life, you are not going to find yourself regretting that you didn't have that house that you really wanted. That you didn't get it decorated like Joanna Gaines. That won't be your number one regret. You are not going to regret that you didn't get that promotion or achieve that success at work. You are not going to have the regret at the end of your life that you didn't have the greatest image or the most followers on social media, that you didn't have the best retirement or visit those certain places or get those certain things. That will not be your greatest regret. When you get to the end of your life, your greatest regret will be that you did not live up to the potential that God had for your life. If you would have stopped trying to prove yourself all the time and just walked in the fullness of his love for you, displayed and the sacrifice of Jesus. I'm fully loved. And Paul says, I'm fully known. Because I'm fully loved and I'm fully known, I can offer to other people anything that they need because I have all that I need in Jesus. May we be a church. May you be a family. May you be an individual follower of Jesus who walks in the fullness of the knowledge of the love of God displayed for you in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love. And God, that just feels inadequate. It really does. It just doesn't feel adequate. I just can't even imagine where my life would be without you. And yet, I often get my eyes away from that truth. And so the love that I'm offering to other people is really selfish. And so God, each time I come to worship, each time I open your word, I'm reminded I can't do this on my own. I need you. I need you. We all need you, Father. We need to be a people that walk in the fullness of the understanding of your love for us. And though we won't fully ever grasp it, man, we want to chase after it because that's where we get our true value. We don't have anything to prove to anyone because Jesus took care of that for us. So when we fully accept that truth and that kind of love, may everything we offer to other people simply be from the overflow of the experience we have with you. We thank you that this is only possible because of the work of Jesus. He deserves everything. And we offer it to him in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, 